My deep appreciation of theater history was instilled in me by Tom Empey, a college mentor to me and hundreds of others. While teaching Greek theater terms, he would grab the fabric of his slacks and say, You see these pants? Euripides, Eumenides making light of content that could be considered rather dry and stuffy while still maintaining respect for the art, which is what I want to do with this podcast. For each episode, I invite a guest from the many paths my theater career has taken me down. I give my guests no idea what we'll be talking about, but they know we're going to find an outrageous story about theater history and perhaps get a better understanding about why we're still doing it after all these years. So welcome to Euripides Humanities, and I am your host, Aaron Odom. To all Eumenidites, this is Aaron Odom from Trident Theater in Sheridan, Wyoming, bringing you another episode of Euripides Eumenides, a theater history podcast. And I have some exciting news to share with you before we begin. I've been somewhat beleaguered in life as of late by things I have no control over. While this is unfortunate, I explained this to an old friend who is much older and wiser than I, who simply responded, so what you're experiencing, it's called life. This, I couldn't deny. But in the midst of all these troubles, I did have a few bright spots that made all the difficulties seem worthwhile. I owe you, my listeners, some deep gratitude. Sometime this last week, I can't pinpoint exactly when this podcast passed a new milestone. Euripides Humanities now has 10,000 downloads and an international audience which keeps growing with each episode, so I must give a big hearty bow to you all. I just did it. You can't see me do it, but I did it. I promise you. Thank you so much for continuing to listen, and I'll keep making the show as long as you're coming back for it. But speaking of listeners, let's recognize some new places where I'm seeing some downloads. In the States, I have to recognize my listeners in New Jersey. I'll be around next month. I'm taking a trip to Broadway over the 4th of July weekend, so I'll be near you. And who knows? Maybe we'll rub elbows somewhere. But abroad, I have to say hello to my listeners in Greece. Plus, you'll love the episode after this one. I'm going to spotlight an ancient Greek comedy. Perhaps you'll notice some similarities in your current culture that were there thousands of years ago. I don't know. Never been to Greece. But for today's episode... I was treated to what seems to be an annual event, sitting down with friends of the podcast, Dalen and Ashley O'Connell, as they visited family in town. The O'Connells have been quite busy up in the Twin Cities and took some time to catch up with me and were nice enough to sit down and record another episode with me. Regular listeners may remember their horror story episode or their appearance on my second episode, The Authorship Question. Well, for today, and as I mentioned near the beginning of our chat, I'm not sure why this happens, but we talk about even more British Renaissance shenanigans on this episode. Every now and then, I find a story that just needs to be told, and Dalen and Ashley just unfortunately, or fortunately for this case, happen to be in my line of fire. So, friends and listeners, here's today's episode, The Unfortunate Life of Thomas Kidd. I mean, gotta come back and see the folks every now and then, I guess. So yeah. Exactly once a year. <laughs> exactly once a year. 
I can take them in that many doses. <laughs> just once. Just once. Then there's all this theater stuff you're still doing. Dalen, yeah. you're still teaching. Okay, how's that going? It's going great. I still I still get paid to do technical theater full time. So, mm. you know, I work 10 months out of the year and got two months, quote unquote, off. So it's great. Right. Um, I'm, I am in charge of scenic design, lighting design, sound design, and all the things that come with that for six shows a year, um, which keeps me plenty busy. But, you know, it's a private school, so we've got enough means to kind of... Right. Yeah, yeah. Never really in theater does this happen where they say, oh, how much do you need? No problem. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Was I over budget last last semester? Ah, budget? No budget. Yeah. We don't keep those records. Yeah, no. And then I, I uh, try to do a little freelancing on the side um, mm -hmm. just to remind myself that there's more than 16-year-old carpenters out there. <laughs> um, so I overhire at the Guthrie Theater as a carpenter welder. And then I do some design work and some building work for some little theaters, little nomadic theaters like to reach out to me. Oh, hey, but I mean, built this set on $10 in a pizza box. Yeah, yeah. sure. Why not? That's that stuff, though, that that I, I love those kind of gr grassroots things where somebody's just got an idea. They want to go for it. Mm -hmm. And then there are qualified people like you to help them out. Right. That's awesome. And Ashley, oh. holy cow. <laughs> I mean, uh, I you've been incredibly lucky uh, coming back into this after, you know, being mom for a little bit and still yeah. that's big part of your life, but you know, holy smokes. <laughs> so last time you were on, you said you had just gotten cast and singing in the rain. That went well. It sounds like very well. Yeah. yeah. I understudied for Kathy, mm -hmm. um, which was a really fun experience, um, especially to get back into all of it and the dancing, which I missed um, so much. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. That was a huge part of your yeah. growing up and everything. Yeah. yeah. But you got into some sort of a Christmas show. Yeah. So, that, oh my God. Yeah, it runs, I don't know, I think it's a total of 44 shows. They seat, I don't know, like 85, and they sell out the entire show, mm -hmm. the entire run, the entire show. 155. Um, 155. 155 seats. Excuse me. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then so, dinner theaters, that's, that's, that's tight corners. It sure is, yes. <laughs> As the actors, we don't have to do anything with the food or anything. I know some dinner theaters actors are serving and things like that, but we just get to do the show. So, nice. Yeah. Oh, man. It's really great. Um, and then I'm also uh, part of a ladies dance team. So we just had a recital. Mm -hmm. Doing all things arts. And, oh, man. That's yeah. great. You picked up a little freelance teaching. I did. I was teaching um, at, actually at Dalen's school. Oh, cool. um, and they lost one of their... Uh, theater teachers so ah. reached out to me oh. um and i reformed their creative dramatics class fell in love with teaching that and proposed a new class for them for like a movement for theater course sounds like you i mean obviously still you're connected there through your husband yes uh in the room with us today is also andra the woman who walks beside me who is trying to stay out of earshot of the microphone hi hon <laughs> hi euripidose yeah well, that that'll work <laughs> <laughs> See behind every great man no. <laughs> is a woman shaking her head. <laughs> so I don't know why this happens when I get you on this show. It's you are on episode number two, and this is now sixty-four. Yeah, I haven't had you on here for sixty-two episodes. Well, I mean, we had our, your horror story, but I don't know why it happens this way. That when I get you on this show. I gotta talk about the British Renaissance, and it's not like that's any of your your specialties. I, I got a face that screams British Renaissance. <laughs> <laughs> your neck just looks like a frill. <laughs> Hard to tell if I'm necessary. playing the male or female parts. <laughs> there you go. Perfect. Exactly. Well, 
So I'll start it off this way. I mean, we were all students at Casper College at different times. Did you get the pleasure of studying under Tom? No. No? Oh, okay. We did meet him Okay. Times. Yep. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you this. When you think of Shakespeare's contemporaries, what names come to mind? Marlowe. Marlowe. Yeah. Mm. There we go. Drop in the bucket. And that's all. <laughs> Was there a John, a John Johnson? Johnson. Yeah, John Webster. There's another one. I remember that from Shakespeare in Love. I went to see that with Tom. And there's a character who's a little boy who sits outside the theaters and he likes to talk about all the, the bloody parts of the plays when Shakespeare comes out and everything. That's John Webster, okay. apparently. I'm like, ah, funny joke. Anyway, yeah, so Marlowe, John Webster, Ben Johnson, yes. But... When I remember when I was first learning about the British Renaissance, I thought it was always good to remember one or two of those obscure names, you know, just in the event that they'd come up on a on a quiz and you could shine on and, yeah. and suck yeah. up to the instructor. So I made sure to remember one more name. Thomas Kidd. Um, no? Rings rings of bell. Okay, yeah, yeah. It's like theater history class and it the, the final quiz was two hundred questions. It was all it was almost all names. Yep. And you had to spell them right. Yeah. So I think, no I think, word bank. Right, yeah. I think Kid, kid might have been on there somewhere. Maybe. I got a C minus. So. <laughs> Lope de Vega. spelled it right. So I made sure to remember Thomas Kidd. And we might know some fun facts about other playwrights on that list, but I intend to give you a breakdown of the life of Thomas Kidd today. And that's spelled K Y D. So okay. would you have gotten that right on the quiz? Kidd did that. No. 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 Okay. <laughs> It's not phonetic, I'm out. I would have said K-I-D-D. So. K- uh, right? Yeah. Pirate. Yeah. Captain Kidd. <laughs> right? Okay. So, yeah, that's what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about Thomas Kidd. Now, I just got to say, though, in everything that I read researching this, it was so interesting to me to note just how much of the research indicated that records about the life of Thomas Kidd were somewhat spotty or vague mm. Or details were basically assumed. Okay. So they're like, yes, he was there and you should know him. Well, what can you tell me about it? Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> he was there. He was there. <laughs> yeah. Shakespeare has to have some contemporaries, right? <laughs> like, it wasn't just. Right. Okay. So Thomas was born into a working class family, baptized November 6th, 1558. So he was probably born sometime in the week before that. And that's that's how they noted those things. I love it. Right. Yeah. Like, you didn't have a birthday, you had a baptism. Yeah. <laughs> They'll make a cake for that one. <laughs> the uh, card industry is a little, a little behind. His parents, Thomas's parents, were Francis and Anne Kidd. His father was a scrivener of some note. A scrivener is, you know, basically like a stenographer oh, sure. you know okay. they'll, they'll copy down a letter and send it or something and okay. records indicate that he had won awards for his duties as a scrivener were they records that he had to write <laughs> <laughs> why don't you write this award for yourself <laughs> <laughs> but act surprised <laughs> i did not see this coming thomas was enrolled into the merchant's tailor school in 1565 where the curriculum included training in several languages latin french and italian and evidently it was meant to be a curriculum to create well-trained translators and thomas kidd was known to do that as a profession for some of his life okay so they say <laughs> right <laughs> as records he got the decree we assume he used it yeah oh that's definitely his translation <laughs> In some notes, young Thomas was praised for his handwriting, and it was suggested that he could take up his father's profession as a scrivener, but it's not specifically known if he ever did. 
Just imagine the legacy left. <laughs> yes. Don, these are my favorite quills. <laughs> Treat them well. <laughs> Another part of the curriculum at Merchant Taylor School was to study plays in English and Latin. And it was very likely that young Thomas participated in these activities. A troupe of young actors from Merchant Taylor School performed at a ticketed event in the court of Queen Elizabeth in 1574, which was the first recorded performance by a boys' company at court. It's not known exactly if young Thomas was part of the troupe, but it's likely, and historians assume that he probably was there. <laughs> Can we just assume history? I love it. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. It seems right to me. And, uh, you know, here's the thing his father was a scrivener. Was he writing any of this down? Mm. Maybe he didn't do that. Maybe he didn't take his work home. <laughs> <laughs> Dad, how come you never write about me? Shut up. That's all I do day and night is write other people's shit down. <laughs> That's so sad. Four times. <laughs> oh, we might be saying that a few times in this episode. Okay. Um, but again. Nobody knew if he was there, and no one can say in what capacity. Did he play? Did he just help out? Was he just present? Because he, he may have been there. Mm. That's it. Upon graduating from Merchant Taylors, Thomas intended to go to university at either Cambridge or Oxford. But it's assumed <laughs> that he was denied admission, as some of his writings could be interpreted to favor the Catholic faith. Mm-hmm. Now, this is where I'll remind you that the Anglican Church was created in 1534 when Pope Clement VII denied an annulment of King Henry VIII's marriage to Catherine of Aragon. Right, right. <laughs> you won't do it? Fine. I'm starting my own church. I'll make one. I'm a king. Great. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, he split from the Catholic Church and made the Anglican Church. King Henry is also known to have no real specific problem with the Catholic Church other than they wouldn't give him what he asked for. So, under his rule, most of the practice of the Anglican Church closely resembled the practice of the Catholic Church. <laughs> you know, if you just threw a, thrown a chunk of change at the Catholic Church, they probably would have rethought. See, but, that, uh, I, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Maybe so. Mm, yeah. No. I, I work at a Catholic school. I don't mean anything by that. I just... <laughs> Well, and I, Money moves mountains. That is something I always find really funny when you're talking about, like, okay, we're in this small town in the West where uh, there are a lot of bars and there are as many churches as there are bars. Yeah. Okay. It's just, that's how a lot of old towns in the West are set up. over. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Party on Saturday, go to church on yeah. Sunday. But I, 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 I so enjoy that. It's very rare. It seems very rare to me. I don't know about you guys. Cause daily you grew up, your faith was pretty important to you. And, it was very interesting to me how so many churches can't really describe their faith or why it's different than anybody else in town. <laughs> They're just like, I know I'm this and you're that and we are not crossing here. Yeah. Right? Isn't that yeah, funny? Yeah, I, don't know. Yeah. I, I, I like to joke at the Catholic school. I go, well, I'm Baptist and just see how the room works. <laughs> Wait, how often do you do communion? What? Whoa. Once a month? Are you gonna like what are the odds you're gonna die on that day? I mean, come on. <laughs> That's kind of risky, isn't it? Like, wait, how many days did your Jesus raise from the grave? <laughs> oh. <laughs> so, anyway, after the death of King Henry VIII, his daughter Mary I tried to restore the Catholic faith to England, mm. often ordering Protestants to be burned at the stake. She got the nickname Bloody Mary for her persecutions. And after her death, 
Elizabeth I came to the throne, and she strengthened the Anglican Church again. No more of this Catholic nonsense. Get back in the Anglican Church. This is the time when the Puritans came to power. And the Puritan movement is so named because one of their big things was to try to purify the Church of England from any Catholic practices or get all the Catholic out. Get it out. <laughs> it's like, you're, you're doing it. You're doing it. Okay. <laughs> so when I say that Thomas Kidd was most likely denied admission to both Oxford and Cambridge because of the possibility he wrote something that portrayed the Catholic Church in a positive light. I mean, these people weren't messing around back then. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. I kind of like the Pope. I'm sorry. What did you say? Yeah. <laughs> I said he has a nice hairline. <laughs> okay, but no more than that. So anyway, Thomas probably did take up his father's profession as a Scrivener for a short time. And again, it was known that he also did work as a translator. No idea how long or when. Perfect. <laughs> and how do we know? <laughs> See, and that's just it. Like, when I was doing the research here, there was a lot of work that went into this. They're like, well, Thomas Kidd was definitely a person. And he definitely wrote some plays. <laughs> I'm going to get into it here in a little bit, and, and I can't. I, it, it, some of the facts about this are still kind of astounding to me. Okay. Uh, but yeah, they found this piece of paper that was written in a certain hand, and they compared it to this one over here. That sure. we, then, okay, we attributed that to him, so it looks like him. He probably wrote this. Mm -hmm. And you're like, whoa. Yeah. And, and then there were some, like, uh, I'll get into it here in a little bit, but I mean, it took them decades, even centuries, to finally go, you know what? I think he did this. Whoa. <laughs> And I don't want to think about it that long, so I'm going to take their word for it. Yep, yeah, exactly. He probably did it. I believe you, researcher. But as a contemporary to Shakespeare, this is probably how Thomas Kidd is best known. It is known, like I said, that Thomas Kidd wrote several plays. We don't really know how many. Mm -hmm. His play, The Spanish Tragedy, is probably his best work. Now that, yep. okay, I'm like, okay, I've heard of that, right? Of course... Initially, it couldn't actually be proven that this was his play until 1773 when a scholar published a collection of British Renaissance plays and he noted that the authorship of the Spanish tragedy was credited to M. Kidd, as in Mr. Kidd. Okay, but they spelled it K-I-D. <laughs> it's gotta be, he was there. <laughs> All versions that survived from the Renaissance were anonymous. He didn't put his name on it. Oh. <laughs> I don't know why. Because <laughs> have... if they found Catholic in it, he didn't want oh, to be on yep, the receiving end. <laughs> well, and Spain was a Catholic right. patient. Oh, yeah. He's out. <laughs> no college for you. Yeah. But scholars have concluded that the Spanish tragedy is very similar in style to a play called Cornelia, which was definitely credited to Kidd. So through some clever detective work and research, they have surmised that the play does belong to him. And here's a bigger quote I found about the creation of the play. And now I'm starting to wonder if the theme of this episode is historiography is very, very muddy. Here's a quote. The date of composition of the play is unknown, with speculation ranging from 1583 to 1591. It must have been written before the 23rd of February, 1592, for on that date it was performed at the Rose Theater by Lord Strange's Men for Philip Henslow, who was a okay. theater entrepreneur. This is unlikely to have been the play's first performance since Henslow did not mark it as an E for new. Mm. Oh. 
a balance of evidence suggests the date of composition before 1588, given the absence in a play about Spain written by a British author, any reference to the Spanish Armada. Because that's when that's when that party kicked off when they beat the Spanish Armada, and now they're no longer the naval strength. So, I mean, it's just you don't tell a story about Spain without talking about this. You Spanish don't tell if, if I mean, yeah, especially if you're a British author. You're like, <laughs> uh, didn't we kick their ass a little bit? Yes, we did, and yep. <laughs> but it sounds like a lovely little play. Honestly, I haven't read it personally, but it involves a revenge plot upon people high up in the Spanish and Portuguese courts, dead bodies hanging from ropes, massive deaths at the end. I mean, it's truly an excellent example of a British Renaissance tragedy. You know, I love telling that when I was teaching it, you know, they're like, so what's what's the deal with tragedy? I'm like, well, depends on where you're from. If it's British Renaissance, everybody's dead. There's a lot of blood, a lot of lot of philosophizing, a lot of. Yeah, (laughs) you're not going to like it. <laughs> but you gotta read it. I mean, I just saw a clip of Tom Hiddleston playing Coriolanus mm. for the for the National or the RSC several years ago, and uh, and I've seen that performed a few times, and that's one of the few plays where I'm like, yeah, he had it coming. <laughs> he definitely had it coming because he was not nice through the entire thing, and in the middle of it, he's just like, all you Roman people are jerks, and I should be in charge, mm. and they're all like. Yeah, no, no. And then for the rest of the play, you're like, just kill him. Just please. (laughs) Let's just be done with this. So here, about the Spanish tragedy, here's from my research some features that I thought were interesting I'd like to share with you. The full title is The Spanish Tragedy or Hieronimo is Mad Again. All right, all right. I see why they went with Spanish tragedy. Yeah, let's, let's let's put that as a subtitle. Hieronimo was a character that apparently was written into at least a few of Kidd's writings, and he was often the main instigator of the mm-hmm. plot. So, like, okay, so this is a follow-up to something else, because he's mad again. <laughs> yes. The play was massively popular in its day, which is still remarkable to me that nobody knows anything. Right, right. <laughs> so check this this big quote out. I love this. The Spanish tragedy proved excellent box office. Philip Henslow, who held the early rights, recorded 29 performances between 1592 and 1597. And those are separate runs. Okay. 29 in five years. A record almost unsurpassed among his plays. The publication record is still more impressive with at least 11 editions between 1592 and 1633. Keep in mind that the the printing press hadn't been there that long. So if they're churning this thing out all over the place over a period of like 40 years, it's like, okay, there's a demand. Christmas show, eat your heart out. Yeah, Yeah, right. (laughs) There are more than 100 allusions to the Spanish tragedy in contemporary literature. Six adaptations, three in German, three in Dutch have survived, and performances are recorded in Frankfurt in 1601, Dresden, 1626, Prague, 1651, and Lüneburg, 1660. Got around. So we got around. (laughs) This is this is your your touring. And did Kid have to translate them all, or Uh, maybe? We don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It's probable he was a translator and a scrivener. So. The play was also massively influential to his contemporary playwrights, inspiring other playwrights such as Ben Jonson and William Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. Here's some reasons why. The Spanish tragedy is one of the first examples in the British Renaissance of a revenge tragedy. 
So it's like mm-hmm. it's it's the the first one, yeah. you know, and these are all over the place after this. And it saw a huge popularity in the decades after that. The type was so frequently used afterwards that around the turn of the 17th century, Shakespeare had to invent new ways of using the revenge tragedy (laughs) because the genre had become somewhat overused. So, I mean, here we are right now. Sorry, kids. The MCU is is tanking. It's tanking, man. Nobody went to Eternals. No, nobody went to Eternals. I finally watched Quantumania when it came on Disney Plus and I went, ugh. Uh, oh, I have to watch three more TV shows in order to understand. Just to catch up. Yeah, yeah, God. Yeah. So, I mean, Shakespeare's looking at that. Shakespeare is now the James Gunn. Oh, man. <laughs> what are you going to do next? <laughs> what are you doing? Well, you know what he did next. He wrote Hamlet and the Scottish play and King Lear. Some of the best tragedies ever and some of them revenge tragedies. So, hey. So Avengers 5, it might be good. It might be good. It might be Everyone good. Everyone dies, but... <laughs> Again. Right. All right. Oh, shoot. <laughs> that reminds me of when Lord of the Rings first came out, the live action ones. And, uh, you know, you go to see the Fellowship of the Ring and you're like three hours in. They're like, we just got to Mordor. Yeah. You're like, awesome. Here we go. Yeah. yeah. And then credits. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I can't... I The number of people... Who were just like, what? <laughs> I went with somebody who kind of liked to make a little bit of a spectacle of himself at times. And <laughs> when people started, you know, uttering their exasperation, he goes, it's a trilogy. It's a trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> There's two more. Oh, man. <laughs> so, yeah, maybe, maybe we'll get more Spanish tragedies. Anyway, the Spanish tragedy ends with a play within a play in which murders are exposed just like in Shakespeare's Hamlet. Yeah. And this is, I think they noted that this might've been one of the first uses in the British Renaissance of the play within a play. Shakespeare used that a few times. Yeah. I yeah. I mean, you know, I was thinking of it like, yeah, obviously Hamlet, but then you've got it in like Midsummer Night Dreamer. at the end. And, and, you know, I mean that, so there wasn't a comedy, mm-hmm. but unlike Hamlet, this play within a play in the Spanish tragedy takes care of the murderers on stage as they have been convinced to perform in the play, but they're not told that real knives will be used in the play's climactic ending scene, and they are murdered in front of a live audience. Whoa. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah, right. I mean, it's just for the show. It's right. not the show. One night only, but it's <laughs> great attendance. <laughs> like, yeah, that was really real. <laughs> I can hear the, the knives effects. going in. Yeah. <laughs> now, speaking of Hamlet, I've referenced it a few times on this podcast before, but remember how I said how it's been said that Shakespeare wrote Hamlet after seeing another version of it by another playwright? Mm. It's often said that this was Thomas Kidd's version. They wrote a whole musical about this. Yeah, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> Although, no copy of it actually exists. Scholars often refer to Kidd's version as Ur-Hamlet, U-R, and the Ur, being a German term, means original. So when they talk about the two versions, it's like, well, you have Hamlet. That's what Shakespeare's, everybody knows that. But then you have Ur-Hamlet, which is... Because no one's willing to believe that Shakespeare came up with it on on his own. He's even said it. Like, I mean, it's come up. When I did uh, the episodes on uh, adapting Shakespeare, you know, it's based on the this Dutch folktale of Amleth, the, mm-hmm. the prince and, you know, his father is killed and he's the king. And so now he's got to go avenge his father. And it's been told 
over and over again mm-hmm. throughout the centuries. Yeah. Now it's finally on paper. Now it's accredited to Shakespeare. And yeah. now it is yeah. arguably the best play ever written, right? Yeah. I guess. Oh, or Hamlet also apparently features a ghost in the first act who appears at the beginning of the play to send the protagonist on his quest. Awesome. So, yeah. But, I mean, you know, you didn't have copyright back then. You didn't have, like, hey, that's my idea. Right. You know, they're just like, whatever gets people in the doors. Yep. Oh, speaking of ghosts, I just thought this feature of the Spanish tragedy was really cool. (laughs) Similar to Hamlet, someone has been murdered before the play begins, and it is this murder that sparks characters on their vengeful quests. In the Spanish tragedy, this is a nobleman named Don Andrea, because he's Spanish, and he appears at the beginning of the play joined by another paranormal figure, the embodiment of the spirit of revenge. So Whoa. revenge as a concept is a character. That's cool. Some everyman stuff. Guys. Yeah, right? Exactly. Uh-huh. And just like that, the two stay on stage for the majority of the play, unseen because they're ghosts, right. and offer frequent commentary regarding the events on stage. It's like the original angels on the shoulder. <laughs> and nobody knows they're there because they're they're spirits. You know? So it could be like, yeah, that was a really good move. I mean, they're I mean, they're writing the the play to kill these people. That really sounds good. I think that sounds good. What do you think, Revenge? Yeah, I don't know that I would have taken that tactic. You know? <laughs> You know, it's 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 not so subtle, and it's going to be kind of damning for kid here later. But yeah, I thought that was fascinating. Wow. You just had these two ghosts on on stage, yeah. and didn't they tell us that in theater history in the Renaissance? Like everybody loved the paranormal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like they were so fascinated by the fact that there could be these unseen forces just guiding our moves and everything. Anyway, I think yeah, the devil made me do it. Yeah, <laughs> devil's in the details. And even though people probably knew it at the time, despite no records actually giving credit, the Spanish tragedy has now long been credited to Thomas Kidd. We just know he wrote it, okay? (laughs) But this is probably not the most well-known part of Thomas Kidd's life. So at this point, this is probably what I like to refer to as the turn. Can you even take a guess at what might happen to Thomas Kidd here? There was a lot of sickness going around at that point. Okay. And he could have got the plague. Mm. Um, okay. <laughs> Ashley's wheels are spinning. <laughs> he lose his hands. Ooh. Ooh. Trying to avenge his father's death. Oh, mm. yes. Well, his father the Scrivener. <laughs> right? Death of a Scrivener. It was the or death of a salesman. <laughs> <laughs> and you can't be a Scrivener if you don't have hands. Okay. Well, I don't know. Let's see what happens. So, some of you out there might know where this is going, but I hope you're not furiously Googling right at this moment because I'd hate for you to spoil the surprise for yourself. But if you are online already and on your mobile device, possibly, go ahead and give us some love. Follow the podcast on Instagram at the Ripides Humanities or Trident Theater pages. You can check out our website, tridenttheater.com, and Trident Theater even has a Facebook page. And if you like it, give us a review or a rating wherever you're listening to the show. I promise you it helps grow the show and bring it to even newer audiences. Okay, putting all that aside, let's get down to what happened to Thomas Kidd. You won't want to miss it. Now, 
Kidd was a lifelong bachelor, and it was common practice for single men to become roommates in order to live and work in London. You know, it was a big city back then. Mm -hmm. I think it was the largest in Europe at that time, 100,000 people. So massive, you know, and as you probably know, you're up in the Minneapolis area. You don't get to live downtown cheap. No. Yeah. So. Does he move in with Willie? In 1593, Kid shared a flat with another famous Renaissance figure. Our favorite little British Renaissance scamp from the last full-length episode you two are on, episode two, the authorship question. That's right. Thomas Kidd shared a flat with Christopher Marlowe. Oh, man. <laughs> and yeah, I, I had to go back and listen to that episode to just see how much uh, conspiracy theorists credited to Marlowe. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, yeah. I love that one where they just decided that he didn't actually die. They faked his death and sent him to Italy, which is why so many plays uh, that Shakespeare wrote were about Italy mm -hmm. because he was just writing them and sending them to Shakespeare. Obviously. Shakespeare's going, well, they're mine. <laughs> Nobody puts their names on these things, apparently. <laughs> you just got to get to the mailbox first. That's yeah. your play. That's right. Now, for the listeners who don't remember, Christopher Marlowe was a university wit turned playwright who would often get himself into trouble for his public declarations of atheism, mm -hmm. but for generally unknown reasons, and I know there are people who know more a lot, a lot more about this than I do, but Christopher Marlowe would often get himself out of trouble due to his connections in the world of espionage. <laughs> And whatever he did in service to the crown was significant enough to frequently be a get out of jail free card. I work at a Catholic high school. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> You're saying he burned down your set? That's okay. We're going to let him go. But why? Don't ask. <laughs> Remember how earlier I said that religion was being taken pretty seriously back then? Yeah. 1593 was near the end of Elizabeth I's reign. And if you weren't Protestant, you were in trouble. Mm -hmm. Marlowe had been making quite a spectacle of himself, and the Privy Council, you remember this small council of advisors around yeah. the Queen? They had begun to dispatch officers to conduct raids on the homes of those considered to be damaging the authority of the Church of England. <laughs> you see, it was also an opinion of those in authority that writers could often disguise their true feelings about challenging the crown by writing them into their plays. <laughs> Never happened. <laughs> Thus, it wasn't the authors having criminal intent. It was their characters, right? The author, I just wrote this person. hates the crown. I don't. It's just a colorful character. This is considered particularly damning in Kidd's case because in the Spanish tragedy, his character Hieronimo writes the tragedy that is to be performed and where the vengeance is carried out in front of a live audience. Yeah. So like, well, he wrote that. Mm -hmm. So he must want to kill. He must really obviously have just foul intent in mind. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They just loved the Scottish play. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That, 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 that's just like, you know, hating on Michael Shannon because he played General Zod and wanted to take over in Man of Steel. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like terrible. No. Yeah. Hate He's ob obviously, Can't obviously, you know, it was for the longest time that I hated Philip Seymour Hoffman. Really? <laughs> I first really got to know him. Like I, in my teenage years, he was in uh scent of a woman and he played this rich kid prep school, Prince of America, absolute spoiled brat. Just always was trying to give you a nickname. Like, can I, you know, your name's Charles, can I call you Chaz? You know, and you're like, oh, that, that kind of guy, right? Ugh. So I couldn't stand him. 
And then years later, while I'm taking acting lessons in school and stuff, I'm like, oh my God, he affected my emotions. Yeah. That's a good actor. Dang it. That's funny. Yeah. So it had also been suggested that a lot of Marlowe's works had hidden and coded messages in them as well. So on May 12th, 1593, the flat of Kidd and Marlowe was a target of these officers. With no warning, they descended upon their place looking for, quote, diverse, lewd, and mutinous libels. So things written in print. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Reddit.com. This is your blog? (laughs) (laughs) And what better place to look than in the home of two playwrights for diverse, lewd, and mutinous libels? (laughs) Can I get that on a bumper sticker? <laughs> Diverse lewd. <laughs> and it was all in like uh, Middle English spelling. So it was very, it was like D I U E R S. So diverse. <laughs> and in their search in some of kids' belongings, these officers found an atheistic pamphlet and, quote, vile and heretical conceits denying the deity of Jesus Christ our Lord. I mean, it could have been anything. It That's been so anything. big. It yeah. is so Unless he wrote it down. I believe Jesus Christ was not God. <laughs> <laughs> is this your handwriting? Oh. <laughs> Kids swore up and down that that particular piece of work, or whatever they found, was one in the trash. Mm-hmm. I, I threw it away. I don't believe it anymore. <laughs> and two, it, it originally belonged to his flatmate. The, Christopher or Emma. I'm holding it for a friend. <laughs> Those aren't my plays, officer. <laughs> I have no idea how those got in here. He left him here, and uh, he was supposed to be back. I don't know. Unfortunately, Marlo was not present at the time of this raid. Kid was arrested, taken into custody to await trial, and was imprisoned at the Bridewell, which is a former palace of Henry VIII, but in 1593 was being used as an orphanage, a workhouse, and a prison. Which makes it feel like all those words become synonymous. There's some gray lines that just blend at some point. (laughs) We have a lot of space. (laughs) Okay, it's a prison. We'll start there. And uh, yeah, just like some, you know, uh, uh, prison farms. We'll get some work out of it. Oh, we've got all these kids without parents. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Ditch the ones that can't sing. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds great. We'll we'll write that into something a couple hundred years from now. Marlowe was arrested on May 18th, six days later, but was released two days after that. (laughs) He let him take the fall. And because of his proximity to Marlowe, Kidd was subjected to significant torture during his time at the Bridewell under the direction of interrogator Richard Topcliffe. And I, yeah, I'm like, it's, it sounds like a nice name, you know, you're like, okay. Dick Topcliffe, yeah. (laughs) Just the worst. Here's a quote about Dick Topcliffe. No blot is more foul on the history of Elizabeth's latter years than the name of Richard Topcliffe. So I started to look this guy up a little bit, and it's not really known what type of torture kid endured during his imprisonment. But the name of Richard Topcliffe, years after his death, has become synonymous with egregious torture. Just terrible stuff. He's listed to be someone who would still inflict torture after a suspect has already been broken on the rack, spilled their guts, and he'll go, yeah, let's hurt him some more. 
Yeah. Oof. Yikes. <laughs> He's also been portrayed as a cruel and vile villain in several plays, movies, and TV shows. Yeah. That, that'll get you there, yeah. <laughs> Marlowe was killed on May 30th, 1593, before he could be truly brought to justice. This gives some credence to the idea that we talked about on the last full-length episode that you that guys That he died did, on purpose. That his killing was not in a bar brawl. <laughs> or a disagreement over a bar tab but a snuffing of a potential leak in the dark world of British espionage. So whatever he must have known, he was getting really close to, like, he was playing with the loaded gun, you know? I mean, and they were like, hey, you, we got to take this out. We got to take care of this as soon as we can. He used his last get out of jail. Yeah, I think so. But I guess it might also give some credit to he faked his death because he had to get out of town. <laughs> Like, I mean, the way he used kid, he probably tossed some dude in the river dressed as him. And that they they suggested that, didn't they? Or like, he's a playwright. He orchestrated this play where some guy gets stabbed in a bar. Yep, yeah, and 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 he did. He had one that. of the orphans. He's, <laughs> Why is Daddy not going home? <laughs> uh, so it suggested that his arrest, Marlowe's arrest on May 18th, was prompted by some of the declarations of Kidd while in prison because Kidd consistently maintained his innocence, okay? Mm -hmm. But there was definitely some sort of effort from the Privy Council to put forth discredit to Christopher Marlowe and his name and his legacy and everything, even though he's written these great plays, he's done some great service to the crown, but you know, you can't go around saying you don't believe in God, apparently. <laughs> So like I said, Kidd consistently declared his innocence while enduring torture in prison and was eventually acquitted and released. But the torture he endured took its toll. Less than a year later, completely destitute, Thomas Kidd died at the age of 35 or 36. <laughs> Records aren't sure. His mother had to discharge his estate because it was full of nothing but debt. Kidd was laid to rest in St. Mary Cole Church in London on August 15th, 1594. St. Mary Cole Church burned to the ground in the Great London Fire of 1666 and was never rebuilt. And some studies I read had to note the irony of the place he died and just how close it was to the Bridewell prison. No. I, he did write one more play that Cornelia we talked about. And I think in the preface, he complained a lot about his treatment <laughs> in prison. Yeah. It wasn't fun. No. It wasn't fun. And that's the real story of Thomas Kidd. We think. Probably. <laughs> that's the real probable story of Thomas Kidd. That's why? Yeah. So Shakespeare's contemporaries, I, I think there was a reason that some of them didn't achieve the fame that he right. did, maybe? I don't know. And, I mean, you'll still have scholars today who are like, you know, Shakespeare was just one guy. There were so many of them that were writing and doing things and were very popular at the time, and it didn't actually come to pass until, I don't know, the 1700s, 1800s, when people were like, wow, this Shakespeare guy really knew his stuff. Mm. And they'd start studying him over everybody else. Right. Yeah. But 
still doesn't he, mean there weren't good plays out there yeah he had the spanish tragedy at least run right. what 29 different uh yeah. runs in five years yeah i mean i've talked about that on this show before where the korean theater economy is kind of a repertory thing you know when they send some something to seoul mm-hmm. they know it's going to run on a limited run uh, west end kind of does this a, a little bit too m- more for non-musicals and, and broadway does this as well but Usually when they're sending out something big, something huge, a musical, they want it to run forever, mm-hmm. not in Korea. They go, if you don't make it during this run, you don't make it. Uh, but we know you like it. So some other group is probably going to do it again within the next four to five years, and you'll get an opportunity to see it then. Gotcha. And speaking of my guests on the last episode, that kind of goes on in Australia as well. And I, I, I thought that was brilliant. Yeah. I mean, you know, here we just... Close Phantom on Broadway after what thirty five years right. on Broadway, yeah. right? And and did well up until then. Right. But you know, post COVID, like everybody's still trying to figure out what's going on. And everything. Yeah. So for a playwright to have one play in several different venues and translated into several different languages and tour the entirety of Europe, you're like, okay, this guy had something That'd going on, yeah. and people seem to like it. I don't know. I think I'd go see a play where people are being murdered on stage. Right. <laughs> I think I've been in a few. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't like Hamlet where, you know, the play within a play, it, yeah. you know, you see you see an actor get poison in the ear and the king stands up and gets all flustered and runs off. But yeah. here everybody's like, oh, they're really dead. Right. <laughs> yeah, but Shakespeare lived. So. True. <laughs> yeah. Well. Apparently, he didn't get close enough to Christopher Marlowe. Yeah. Right, right, I guess. <laughs> um, I also think, like, is there a way you could vet your roommate a little bit? Right. Yeah. <laughs> but you, you got to know that, like, those two are dead. The apartment's probably still loaded with plays and papers and what oh, happened man. to all of those. Oh, I, I, one thing that I read said that Marlowe's apartment was almost like an MI6 safe house. So it had all kinds of stuff. But they were only looking for the stuff that was anti-church, right? <laughs> you know, the lewd and uh, <laughs> what else? Uh, I gotta love how they how they describe that. They don't exactly say what it was, but vile and heretical conceits, denying the deity of Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> I got a warrant for lewdness. <laughs> Is there anyone else in the building with you, uh, sir? We believe you have blasphemed. Uh, <laughs> Bought a red hot poker for your tongue. (laughs) (laughs) Unless you can prove that you didn't. (laughs) It was all Marlowe. I heard him. I heard him a few times. I said, you're going to get in trouble. (laughs) But man, how about that? Thomas Kidd. Brutal. Like if he had lived, we might we might know who he was. It might not be probably he did this. It might be he did do this. Well, so many of the records that I saw said it was that torture that probably really took his toll because he complained about it a lot. They didn't have x-rays back then or kick stands. Yeah, it's probably all (laughs) twisted inside. Mm, I think we should open up your other lung. It's probably full of bile. That's that's, that's the problem. That's obviously the problem. But yeah, there we go. Thomas Kidd, The Spanish Tragedy. And that's two episodes in a row now that I've really brought the mood down. Yeah, the bro didn't even get to rest in peace. Like he just oh, well, he did for like seventy years. I, yeah, that's that's good for him. I just 
this is another thing when I'm picking these things up and I'm researching and I'm reading, uh, I go, why did they think to put that in there? Right. Like what? Yeah. <laughs> is were, Was somebody just hell bent on believing that this soul was doomed? Because <laughs> 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 they pointed out he was buried in this place. It burned to the ground. <laughs> Something else is built on top of it. And the place that he died was so close to the place where he was tortured. Historians are weird. <laughs> <laughs> Or they're they're like really excited, about right? It. Right. Not we know so much more about the dark than we do about the happy days. Yeah, mm, right. He was. They get all these stats about how many were killed in the war, and not how many survived and went home. <laughs> <laughs> well, there we go, Thomas Kidd. Any last thoughts there? Poor guy. I think that I'm okay not having been a contemporary of Shakespeare. Yeah. 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 No. It didn't vote so well. It's, it's <laughs> bad enough doing theater in Wyoming. I mean. <laughs> Like, we get a taste, we get a sampling, but not. <laughs> Indeed. So, my Yemenites, did you see that coming? And why doesn't it surprise me that the more well-recorded points of Thomas Kidd's life were his arrest, torture, and death, not his body of work that seems to have been fairly substantial, if not wholly influential? But, c'est la vie. All's fair in love and theater? And as far as the Spanish tragedy, you can definitely find it online. It's probably, unfortunately, gathering dust in your public library right now. But maybe it's worth a resurgence, right? Who knows? Many thanks to Dalen and Ashley O'Connell for their contributions to this episode, and I can't wait to have you listeners back for the next one. We're going to be going over an ancient Greek comedy. Which one? You'll find out in two weeks. I'll see you at intermission. Avantum, avantum. Mm-hmm.